Our lesson for the day is going to be from Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 8 through 21. Please listen, this is God's word. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's good and true. I pray now that your spirit would come and help me preach your word. I pray that your spirit would help us receive your word and that it would produce an abundant harvest. Father, don't let us be like the rocky soil which receives the seed, but there's no effect. Father, we want your word to transform us more and more into people. You reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you come now? Would you do these things? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3. And before we dive into our passage, just very briefly for about a minute or two, I want to talk about why does the book of Genesis matter? Why is it so foundational for us? Genesis really is the book of beginnings. And that's true on multiple levels. Um, Genesis particularly, just these first three chapters of the Bible are really the setup for everything that comes uh, throughout the entire scriptures. Every major Christian doctrine, I would say, is found just in the first three chapters of Genesis in some form or another. So you can really see these first three chapters as as a little microcosm, a picture of everything God is going to do for his people uh, throughout the scriptures. It's in the first two chapters of the Bible that we see God's character on display. We see his goodness, his love, his care for his creation. It's in the first two chapters of the Bible that we learn how the world came into existence, that it was not through impersonal, blind, evolutionary forces, but through a personal living God who speaks and everything comes into existence. We believe what we believe about men and women that were distinct yet equal beings because of these chapters. We learn from these chapters that all of human life 
in every stage, it's sacred because it bears the dignity and image of God. You can think about institutions like marriage, uh, the family, um, the mandate for us to go and create godly culture. This is all here in these first few chapters of the Bible. It's here that we learn our created destiny as human beings is to worship God and to commune with him in the created world that he's made. So today what I want us to do is I want us to think about Genesis in terms of what does it teach us about the gospel. Again, the basic building blocks of the gospel message, they're all here in what we find in these first three chapters of the Bible. We can see our first parents under the influence, right, of Satan and evil. We can see their fall into sin. We can see the corruption of God's good creation. We also see God's love. We see his grace, his judgment on Satan and evil and his work of sacrificial atonement. So today we're going to unpack mostly elements from the first half of Genesis 3. We're going to see that the story of the fall in Genesis 3, it's really our story too. We're going to see that when it comes to our first parents, all of us really are chip off the old block, as people say. We're tempted by Satan and evil in all the same ways that we read here. We feel the effects of Satan in our lives just like they did. And our only hope is found in the same place where Adam and Eve put their hope, in the grace and mercy of the living God. Okay, so our passage today deals primarily with the fall and its aftermath. But in order to understand the magnitude of what takes place and what we read, we first must consider how did God create the world in order to understand what it is that we have lost the severity of sin and the fall and the absolute necessity of God's grace that only makes sense in light of God's good creation that we read earlier about in Genesis 1 and 2. God's glory, his power, his goodness, they're all in display in these first two chapters. We read in Genesis 1 about God's incredible, miraculous work of him speaking and everything comes into existence. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all, all their host, as Psalm 33, 6 says. We read here that God created the world uh, in the span of six days. We see this refrain over and over again after he creates. He creates, he evaluates, and then we're told that God saw that it was good. In Genesis 2, we read earlier in, uh, in our service about God's crown of his creation, the creation of the first man and the first woman. We read that the, God, the Lord God took the man from the dust of the ground to form him, and then he takes a rib from the, man, from the woman's side and creates her out of him. Consider the first words of the Bible where we hear human beings speak to each other um, are recorded in Genesis 2.23. These are the words of a husband's joy, a husband's delight in his bride. So in this passage, Adam begins to spontaneously spout poetry, right? What men have been doing for many centuries about the beauty and the value of this woman that God's created. He says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The author of Genesis gives us the following commentary on the scene. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These two sentences provide uh, for us not only the entire basis of everything we believe as Christians about marriage and sexuality, but they also give us a very powerful statement about what life was like before sin happened. What was life like on earth? Well, we see that for the man and the woman, they had this relationship um, that is marked by this phrase, naked and not ashamed. 
In other words, they experience really what every heart longs for, to be known and also loved. They saw that everything about the other, without any fear, they felt no shame in front of each other. There was no fear of getting hurt. They were both comfortable in their own skin, their own soul. Nobody was embarrassed by their body. Nobody felt guilty over something that he or she had done. This little phrase, naked and not ashamed, is really just another way of describing the total relational harmony, a relationship without conflict, without misunderstanding, without tears, without hurt feelings, the kind of relationship, again, that we all long for this. So what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is life the way it was meant to be. We see all creation buzzing with joyful, God-glorifying life. We see a relationship between a man and a woman that's marked by mutual trust and care and delight. This was the way life on earth was made to be. And this, again, is the kind of life all of our hearts are longing uh, to, to get back to. So when you hear Genesis 1 and 2 read, when you read this, it should make your heart ache, right? Because obviously this, this is not our world. We do not live in this world, and it looks very different now. Reading the first two chapters in the Bible should make us long to be restored to how we were made to be. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that God's work of salvation, it's a work of restoration, it's a work of renovation, a work of God cleansing and transforming his creation that has gone terribly wrong. This is why we read in various places in the New Testament that God's work of redeeming his people is described in terms of God's going to recreate a new humanity. He's going to restore his creation. Paul says the same kind of thing, right? 2 Corinthians 5, we're very familiar with this verse, a lot of us. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. So Genesis 1 and 2 really give us this picture of the glory of God, that he is in the midst of transforming and recreating right now. He's creating a people for himself that more and more will be restored back to the way we were meant to be. The coming new heavens and new earth will be a new and better Eden populated with God's new humanity. In this place, the spiritual and relational bliss and wholeness, again, that our hearts long for when we read Genesis 1 and 2 will finally be fulfilled. People of God, consider a day, uh, consider that a day is coming for us when you will stand before God and you will stand before other people without the tiniest hint of guilt or shame. We will know each other in ways that will never again include pain or fear or sadness. We will spend an eternity getting to know God and love God and each other. And the more we discover about God and each other, the fuller our hearts will be. That's a reality worth getting excited about. Amen? Okay, so let's jump into our passage now that we read this morning. Um, describes this tragic scene of sin and the fall. This morning we're mostly going to look at what was involved in Adam and Eve's first sin and its effects, and then uh, near the end we're briefly going to start um, looking at God's gracious, redemptive movement towards his people. So first let's talk about the sin itself of Adam and Eve. What all was involved in this? What do we see? The first aspect of sin I want us to see is that the fall was about listening to the wrong voice. Sin and the fall was about listening to the wrong voice. So Adam and Eve have heard uh, several voices speaking to them before our passage in Genesis 3. The primary speaker in Genesis 1 and 2 is the living God. And they heard him speak to them, giving them commandments. 
uh, full of love and grace, pointing out the way of life, warning them about the way of death. The first thing that the woman hears after she is made is, again, this voice of her husband proclaiming joy and delight in her. Adam and Eve is the only people on earth that would have ample time to listen to each other, wouldn't they? Uh, Before Genesis 3, I don't think anybody would have heard in this marriage, are you listening to me? Right? Uh, But at the beginning of verse uh, chapter 3, we see a new character show up, and he's going to start speaking too. And what he says is very powerful, and he says very terrible things. So what does Satan do? He shows up, he's going to speak some things as well. And what does he start with? He starts with, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Catch what he's doing here? How do you think this question makes God look? Did God actually say this? Well, the question right off the bat, it's very crafty and it's very subtle because it makes God out to be someone who is stingy, someone who's tight-fisted, who wants to keep his people away from something that's good. Remember, God tells Adam in chapter 1, um, Basically, he can eat of any tree in the garden. It's all there for him, except just one. He never says them that they're prohibited from eating of any tree like Satan says. In other words, God's gracious nature, it was the emphasis for Adam's provision in the garden. Again, God just gives only one prohibition against eating only one tree. But what does Satan do? He's going to turn what God has said on its head, and he asks the woman a question that makes God out to be someone who's defined more by what he prohibits than what he provides. So the essence of what Satan is implying here is that God isn't good. He is not gracious. He's not someone who's going to provide for what they need. He's stingy and he's withholding something back from them. What else? What else does he say to the man and woman? He tells them if they eat, the consequences will really be the exact opposite of what God has said. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the basic point of what he's saying here? Well, he's saying that God isn't trustworthy. He tells them that the wages of sin are not death, like God has said. Instead, he tells them that they will get something good that they need in return. Satan promises knowledge. He promises them they will become like God. He basically says that God has lied to them about the consequences of sin. When we read this, this exchange between Satan and our first parents, here's what we need to see. We need to see that Satan still speaks. This is not like ancient history uh, is disconnected from us. Satan speaks to us just like he speaks to Adam and Eve. And you don't have to be crazy to hear the voice of evil in your life because it's saying things to you all the time. You just have to be a fallen person living in a fallen world in order to say, you know, I hear, I hear voices in my head. I hear something speaking to me that's very evil on a regular basis. And when we read our passage, it's very easy uh, to be hard on our first parents and just think, how could they not have seen what Satan was doing? It's so clearly wrong. But again, I I would say to us that from the Bible's perspective, Satan and evil speak to us just as loudly as he spoke to our first parents. And I would argue that what Satan says to us is more seductive. It's more compelling because we have this fallen sinful nature that has its antenna up ready to receive and listen to Satan's signal and his voice. And we live in a fallen world that's filled with so much sin and suffering that always sets the table for you um, to, to fight temptation. And so Satan and evil, they really don't have to work nearly as hard to tempt us, do they, like they tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. 
They don't have to work very hard to tell us lies that can begin to look very plausible, maybe very compelling. Just like with Adam and Eve, Satan usually doesn't say to us directly, you should disobey. No, he just begins to seduce us into slowly believing lies that are spiritual poison for us. So my counseling ministry with people, I hear uh, people all the time say things that tell me that they've begun hearing Satan's lies as having a ring of truth. Yeah, I know lust is wrong, but she doesn't want to have sex with me. So what am I supposed to do? I might be a little bitter, but you have no idea what they did to me. My bitterness is nothing compared to their sin. I wouldn't get so angry if she didn't push my buttons and keep nagging and nagging. Any of you relate to these kinds of statements? We know that we are beginning to listen to Satan's voice rather than God's. Whenever we start to craft subtle justifications for our sin, or when we downplay our own sin in light of our suffering or the sin of someone else. So listen, this means growing in wisdom means we're growing in our ability to hear the voice of evil, and we can discern that voice very clearly from God's voice. And growing in our faith means that we are growing in our ability to trust and obey God's voice rather than the voice of evil, which is speaking to us very regularly. And think about this, like behind virtually every temptation we face, for so many of them, we really hear the same essential lies, don't we, that our parents first heard? Behind almost every evil whisper that you hear from your flesh or from Satan, this is what we hear. If we just boil it all down, we hear that God isn't good. He's not gracious to you. God is someone you cannot trust. Think about fear, for example, right? A very common struggle we all face. What is happening when you feel paralyzed by fear? Evil speaking. It's saying very powerful things to you. It's saying to you that God will leave you alone in your pain and your struggle. It whispers to you that God will not provide what you need, that he will leave you high and dry, that he will leave you alone to drown in your problems. Evil speaks to you in your fear, telling that God's not in control. No one's in control. And life is going to spin out of control for you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Evil says to you that God's plans and purposes will not prevail over your pain. In fear, Satan is a prophet of doom, and he's telling you that the worst will always come true. That what awaits you in your future is not God's goodness, but endless misery and loss and pain that, again, you can't do anything about. Again, these are all variations, right, on these ancient lies that our first parents heard. God isn't gracious and good. God is not trustworthy. Let's move on and talk about another aspect of this this first sin that we see. A second aspect of sin we see is that sin is rebellion. It's rebellion against God. The tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin is only highlighted, again, when we consider God's provision in Genesis 1 and 2. The first man and woman were created by the God of love the one who had provided for their every need, the one who had placed them in this glorious, beautiful garden sanctuary. They owed their very existence to God, and they were created for the unique glory of reflecting God's image in the world. They were blessed by God. They were given the joyful task of being fruitful and multiplying and reigning as God's chosen kings and queens of creation. They inhabited this place where they could joyfully fulfill their purpose of worshiping God by glorifying him and enjoying him forever. But they forsake all this, don't they? In order to go their own way, 
a way that God already said, this is the way to death. So all this only highlights this is the folly, the foolishness of their own sin. The folly and rebellion of sin demonstrates just enormous self-deception. We're always deceiving ourselves when we sin. Adam and Eve really did think that opposing God was going to give them something good. As Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. They rejected their royal birthright. They traded this abundant life of provision for a life of pain and futility and death and dust. You can think about Adam and Eve really being the original prodigal son, the original prodigal daughter, the ones to first leave the love and care and provision of their father in order to listen to the lies of Satan and choose death over life. Any parent here who's had a child turn away from God and choose a life of understands the tragedy of this, the anguish of this. Singing against the creator of heaven and earth is like a child who's been surrounded by love and mercy and deep care since birth only to grow into a person who hates his parents and spits in their face. And again, from God's perspective of wisdom, we look at sin and we think, this looks crazy. It looks really nuts. How could God's children forsake a life of blessing, a life where they lack nothing to pursue a life of sin and death and tears and shame and futility and exile? So for every, every sin that we fall into, there's always an element of insanity involved in it. This explains why people choose to forsake their families and their jobs to chase after a life of addiction and homelessness. It's the reason behind why people are willing to incinerate their relationships with their spouses and families and friends to chase the fleeting pleasures that are so temporary of sexual sin. This is why some people choose a life of bitterness and anger that pushes everyone away and then the same people rage against being all alone and isolated. So we need to see that behind every sin, no matter its significance, it's always an act of foolish, crazy rebellion against God. Here's a third thing about their sin I want us to see, is that uh, the sin of the fall involved a failure to angrily fight Satan. It involved a failure to angrily fight Satan. Let's think for a few minutes about what should have happened that didn't happen here. What should have Adam and Eve done when when they see this serpent and the voice of evil speaking through it, saying these things. You know what they should have done? They should have gotten really, really angry and violent. They should have violently opposed the serpent and sought to crush his head, to run it out of the garden. The man and the woman were God's first kings and priests, and as such, they are charged with watching over and keeping the garden sanctuary. And just like the priests later guarded and watched over the tabernacle and temple in Israel, Adam was meant to guard the garden, guard the sanctuary of Eden. He and the woman were meant to exercise their dominion as kings and queens by protecting themselves and protecting the garden from intruders. But you notice just how quickly they seem to make peace with the incarnation of evil. They're so calm, right? And they passively let the evil one into the garden And they seem completely unfazed when he begins saying these outrageous, terrible lies about God. And when he begins to call God's trustworthiness into question. And it's painful to consider that Adam actually takes the lead, doesn't he? In his passive response to evil on the fall narrative. We know from verse 6 that he's with her the entire time that evil is seducing his wife. But his silence is deafening, isn't it? He never says a word. He's silent. He doesn't engage as his bride is being attacked by evil. And this pattern plays itself out. We see this all the time, right? This is, this is not just an ancient thing. 
This plays itself out in countless marriages and relationships with people. One of the main ways that evil attacks men is to seek to make them passive and check out from the spiritual battle that they must fight. Or evil will distract and remove men from the real battle they should face by leading them to be consumed with sinful anger and frustration. Evil seeks to make men angry and opposed to all the wrong things. Anything and everything other than evil itself, particularly their own sinful flesh. I don't think it's too much of a stretch based on the teaching of Scripture to say that behind most women who have been seduced and hurt by evil is probably a man, a husband, a father, a brother, or a friend who just remained silent while evil was attacking this person. The temptation to emulate the sinful silence of Adam when confronted with evil, it's something that every son of Adam, we have to see this. We have to recognize this and fight against it by the grace of God. All right, so for both the man and the woman, being made in God's image uh, and being a part of his people meant that they were made to recognize and fight evil uh, with passion, right? They're made to oppose things that were wrong with godly anger and action. Godly anger is what should energize us to join in God's kingdom work of fighting and destroying evil in our life. So I think one could very realistically propose, again, that the first sin of Adam and Eve, it wasn't eating the fruit. There were other things that happened before they did this that were very sinful. We can see that one of their first sins was failing to fight evil as soon as it started speaking to them. I'm sure you've heard the old adage about the only thing required for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. I think there's a lot of truth to that when it comes to the scriptures. And we've seen this. We see this play itself out in so many situations. I can think about the headlines of the last few years, especially of all these abuse scandals that we read about, right? Things like Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, or this last year, right, when Larry Nassar uh, was abusing in terrible ways hundreds of women on the women's uh, gymnastics team, the gymnastics team at Michigan State. What you see in all this is a whole web of people that, that stayed quiet. They're, they're passive when they should have gotten angry, when they should have fought evil and acted. Okay, let's move on now. Let's talk about verses 7 through 12. We're going to talk about the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. There's several things that take place right away today. I'm only going to have time to really talk about just one immediate effect of um, sin coming into the world. Here's the first one we see right off the bat in verse 7. We're told that as soon as they, they sinned and disobeyed by eating the fruit, that the eyes of both were up, opened and they knew they were naked. And then they get to work, don't they? Start sewing these fig leaves together uh, that made uh, loincloths for themselves. What's going on here? Why would they do this? Why, why is this the first effect of sin for them? The most obvious thing that we see here is that what immediately happened was the entrance of shame. For Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve were in a covenantal relationship together, and because they're the only ones on earth, before the fall, they had no reason to cover themselves, right? They had no reason to feel ashamed of their bodies. They had no reason to feel like they needed to hide. But now their souls have the stain of sin on it. And so this outward expression of them covering themselves points to this deeper, deeper inward experience that now they're spiritually defiled. And they have to do something about it. They have to try to cover their unworthiness. They have to cover their own inadequacy. We said earlier at the end of Genesis 2, right, before the fall, we read that the man and woman were both naked and not ashamed, and now that completely changes right off the bat, doesn't it? 
Remember we said that naked and not ashamed was a statement that went much deeper than bodies and skin, but it was a statement about the spiritual relationship they had with God and with each other. It was about being in a relationship with God that was completely open and honest, a relationship that was marked by mutual love and care, a relationship without a trace of mistrust or guilt or conflict or shame. So we see starting in verse 7 is this kind of safe, free, open relationship now is destroyed. It's gone. Adam and Eve now felt guilty and ashamed before God. They feel shame before each other. And our first parent's condition becomes even more tragic, again, when we consider the lies, right, that Satan told them before they ate the fruit. Satan promised them good things, doesn't he, if they were to rebel against God, that they'll be like God. But right away we see that nothing could be further from the truth. What we see right off the bat is the immediate debasing of Adam and Eve with shame. Not only do they fail to become more like God, they lose the glory and the dignity they once had when they lived in this perfect fellowship with God and with each other. Satan promised them glory. He promises you glory and good things. But instead, all he delivered to them was debilitating guilt and shame that reduced God's king and queen to hiding in the trees. And again, this ancient experience of shame is something we can all relate to because all of us, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we come... uh, made into this world bent towards a sinful nature. And I'm convinced that shame is one of the most powerful experiences of life in a fallen world with a fallen nature. I believe one of Satan's most favorite weapons in his assault on God's people and his kingdom is this voice of shame that we we all hear this voice, right? This is another voice that speaks to you and it says powerful things. Shame says not only that you have done wrong, it says you are wrong that you're disgusting, right? That you're broken in the deepest part of you and you're broken beyond repair. Shame tells you that you're dirty, but you can't ever be made clean. It whispers to you that if anyone really knew your sin, they would never love you. It seeks to leave you stuck in crippling guilt and condemnation, and it wants you to believe that you're a fraud, that you're a hypocrite, that eventually people are going to find you out, and when they do, they're going to reject you. Satan so often speaks the powerful lies of shame to us after we sin so that we feel cut off from the love and grace of God, a grace which forgives us and transforms us into people who can hold our heads high, right, because of God's righteousness given to us. Others of us fight shame because of ways that others have sinned against you in some really profound ways. Because someone has abused you or deeply hurt you in your past, you just have this lingering sense of worthlessness that you just can't ever seem to shake. So we will all fight against shame throughout our lives in one way or another. And so this is what we see in our passage. Again, the tragedy is that we see our first parents immediately transform into people who are people full of shame, people who become refugees in their own souls, sinners who are on the run from God, they're on the run from each other. And Adam and Eve, again, they they immediately sense that they have to do something to deal with the shame and the guilt by sewing these fig leaves together. We'll see in just a second that God views their clothing as inadequate for good reasons. Okay, there's a lot more happening in this passage uh, that we can unpack, but for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, just very briefly get to some good news, right? There's lots of good news here. Um, There's so much more to this story and the story of your lives than the work of Satan and evil and guilt. 
So I'm going to save another sermon for another day that unpacks in details all the things that God does. But just the remainder of our time, quickly, I'm just going to give us the bird's eye view of how God enters into this very broken scene and his, his grace goes to work, right, to redeem his people. So this is what we need to see, right? God shows up and he does a series of things. And in all these things that God does, what we see infused in all these actions of God is his grace, right? His loving kindness that he pours out on rebels and outlaws and prodigals who only deserved his fury and his just judgment. So let's consider just very, very quickly, what does God's grace in action look like when God shows up? We see several things. We'll quickly, we'll talk about each one. Verse 8, we see the Lord God enter this scene. He's almost like a first responder to this terrible, tragic situation. What does he do? Does he seize Adam and Eve? Make them stand trial for their cosmic rebellion and treason and then justly give them the sentence of death? That would have been fair. Right? But God takes a different approach. What does he do? He calls out to them. He calls out to Adam like a, like a parent would call out to a lost child. Calls out to Adam saying, where are you? Of course, that's a rhetorical question we know, right? Because God isn't lacking in geographical knowledge. But God wants Adam to see that he's lost. He's desperately lost and something has gone terribly wrong. And we see this throughout the scriptures. It's so often God comes to his people and he questions them in love in order to better see themselves. I remember a while back, Jimmy Gill, he did this fantastic Sunday school lesson on this. I think it was on parenting. All the ways that you see in the Bible how God pursues people by asking them questions so they could see themselves better. To see that they, they've sinned, that they need God, they need to turn back. And you see this throughout, throughout the Bible, right? Just in the next chapter, God confronts Cain when Cain is very angry before he murders his brother. And he asks him, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Later after Cain murders Abel, again, God questions Cain because he wants Cain to see what he's done. He asks him, where's your brother Abel? You can think about places like the book of Jonah where God confronts Jonah's sinful anger. Do you remember what he says? He says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? So God questions his people because he wants us to see our sin. He wants to lead us out of the sin and the destruction back to his grace, back to his kindness in the gospel. And so at our passage, we see a series of questions, right, that God asks the man and the woman because he wants them to see what they've done. He asks them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He says to the woman, what is, it, what is this you have done? This is just a great thing to think about. Like God's actions in this passage give us a model for how do you do redemptive ministry with sinners. For people in your life who you love, who are caught in sin, for other brothers and sisters, what do you do with that? How do we do things like Galatians 6.1? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you charge in with angry accusations, telling them they've sinned and they need to repent right away? Maybe times and places where that approach is okay. But again, more often than not, what we see in the scriptures is this approach God takes with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. We see him graciously leading them to the truth about themselves that they have desperately missed, that they must see so they can repent. Think about another example. Think about uh, when God sends Nathan to confront David after he commits this terrible sin of taking another man's wife and then having her husband killed. What is God's approach in reaching David through Nathan? Nathan could have come at him, right, with a frontal assault. 
Simply saying, David, you've sinned in a terrible way and you must repent right now. But no, God's going to leave David to see himself by having Nathan tell a story, right, that powerfully and illustrates David's sin so that David could have his sin reflected back to him as if he were standing in front of a mirror. And so often this should be our approach in helping lead sinners back to God after they've sinned. I remember um, Jimmy said this. It was great. He was talking about parenting. He said, parents, do we ask our children good questions after they've sinned? To help them see, you've wandered, you've strayed. We need to repent. Husbands and wives, can you graciously, gently help your spouse see his or her sin? Most likely the frontal assault will not work well. But you can patiently listen and engage your spouse in order, again, to graciously help him or her see that we've wandered, we've moved from God, we need to get back. And for the sake of time, let's quickly look at some more of these redemptive movements that God makes towards Adam and Eve. He pours out his grace on them. We've seen how God graciously he comes to Adam and Eve. He's trying to lead them to see themselves better. Then after he mercifully questions them to get them to see the reality of their lostness, he decrees a series of judgments, which are again full of grace. He first curses the serpent, which of course is a symbol of Satan and his kingdom of evil. And he promises that Satan's kingdom will be humiliated and destroy, that there will be a holy war waged against Satan, Satan's domain in the seed of the woman. So God mercifully promises that a future seed of the woman will come who will triumph over Satan and evil and deliver this fatal blow. God then decrees on both the man and the woman uh, a series of judgments as well about the painful realities that life is going to now involve because of sin. But later in the New Testament, we see that even the futility of the curse on Adam and Eve was decreed in order to set them free from slavery to death and decay. The last redemptive action that um, I wish we had more time to do, this will be for another sermon, is that we see God coming to the man and the woman. What does he do last? He clothes them, doesn't he? He clothes them with the skins of animals, which is important, because they already had clothes on, right, that they made themselves. The fact that the blood of animals had to be shed tells us Something very important, right? This is such a powerful picture of the gospel. That Adam and Eve had made these clothes for themselves, and God comes in and says, these aren't good enough. These will not do. You need a shedding of blood to cover your guilt. You need a shedding of blood to cover over your shame. This is such a beautiful picture of what God does for us in the gospel. People of God, do you believe this? You've been clothed with Christ so that all your guilt is atoned for now. But the love of God given to you in Christ, it's an adequate covering for your shame. An adequate means of silencing the voice of evil which constantly seeks to tell you that you'll forever be defined by your sins and your failures. As we begin to conclude today, I want us to think about just one more thing about what's our takeaway from this passage. If we're honest with ourselves, Every day we face the reality that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. Ours is a world of thorns and thistles, a world where you work and you work and you work, and so often you have so little to show for it. We daily live in a world where you hear the lies of Satan. He's speaking. Evil speaks to you, saying these powerfully seductive things in your head and in your heart. And some days we listen to his voice, experience heartbreak and pain as a result. We live in a world where husbands and wives struggle to delight in each other, but instead can easily have their desires turned against each other to fight for control 
to fight to hurt each other. For honest, we face the reality that we live in a world that often feels more frustrating than fulfilling. But just like Adam and Eve, this is, this is what we have to do. We have to put our faith in the rest of the story that God is writing. Genesis 3 ends with this real note of suspense, doesn't it? It ends with Adam and Eve being exiled, driven out of the beautiful Garden of Eden. So the implied question that I think we're faced with is, will they ever get back? Can sinners ever return home from the exile, sin, and judgment? Can wicked prodigals really go back home? And what will they find if they do? And the rest of the Bible answers these questions for us. The way back to the garden, the place of God's blessing, the place where we begin to experience our eternal destiny of worshiping God by glorifying him and enjoying forever. So I'm putting all our faith in the second Adam, the promised seed of the woman who has finally and forever crushed the power of evil in your life. The Lord Jesus took upon himself a frail body of dust as a son of Adam in order to absorb the judgment that all the sons of Adam and the daughters of Adam deserve. And he purchased for us a new life that is free from the penalty of our sins, that releases us from the power of it. So despite our fierce battles with sin and the crushing weight of suffering that we feel, what do we do? We listen to God's voice more than any other voice. And we trust that God is who he says he is. He's gracious to you. He's good. He's someone you can trust. And we believe that if we trust him, he will lead us back to our eternal home, back to the place that our hearts ache for. And in the meantime, we put all our hope that he truly is in the process of crushing all the effects of Satan and evil in our world. And he's making his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word. It's true. It's right. Father, give us faith. Um, As we struggle in a fallen world, I pray that you would, by your grace, help us be people that fight evil by your power. And I pray that your gospel uh, would strengthen us to do that. I pray now for the remainder of our service that you would strengthen us through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the people you've made us to be in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.